Turn to the Word of God, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read a translation that is actually a combination of the English Standard Version and the New International Version. You can follow in the NASB or whatever Bible you have in front of you. Just realize some of the words will be different because I feel, feel this is more helpful and um, true to the underlying Greek words and let, letters. Hear now the reading of God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father in heaven, thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would send him to us now as we spend this time reflecting on the very word of God and all that it means for our daily lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have probably come across the statement at some point or another that Christians can be so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. And there's perhaps some truth to that. We shouldn't be so preoccupied, as it were, with eternal and spiritual things that we forget about today. And the people around us. I think, though, what is interesting about that statement, that Christians ought not be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. What's so fascinating is that the Apostle Paul would echo that idea. His outworking here in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 is staggering in that it is an opening up of what heavenly-mindedness is. If you want to know what it is to be truly heavenly-minded, 
turn to Philippians 2 and read especially verses 5 through 8. Because it's there that Paul says, have this mind in you. And then he, as it were, reaches into heaven to explain what he means by having this mind, this heavenly mindedness. And what's fascinating about that is that it is for the purpose of earthly good. According to the Apostle Paul, the way to be of the most earthly good. If you want to be truly revolutionary, if you want to be completely countercultural, if you want to be the difference in a world that is so full of the drab, monotonous, same sort of selfishness, if you want to stand in contrast to ions of history, then be heavenly-minded for earthly good. If you want to be of the most earthly good, then you ought to be obsessed with what it means to be heavenly-minded, or explicitly the way Paul puts it, to have the mind of Christ in you. To look to Jesus Christ and to see his mind and say, that's what I need for my own mind. And appreciate at this very point that the Christian faith and what the Apostle Paul has to say is not about externals. It's not merely about how you act on any given day, the sort of behavior that would be caught on a surveillance camera. But Paul reaches inside He says, I'm concerned with your mind. That's where it begins. There is talk over and over throughout scripture about the mind and the heart and the sort of foundational, fundamental transformation that we need as those who are sinful by nature and yet called to have a heavenly mindedness about us. Our minds need renovation transformation. We are called to be heavenly minded. And we looked last week at how verse 1 begins with a gospel context saying, look at the church and observe there if you see any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, if there is any same mindedness, if there is any affection and sympathy. And of course, if, if there is none of those things, then that should be a clue that it might not, in fact, be the sort of church that you should be a part of. But if you see any of those things, build on them. Rejoice in that gospel context. Take it to the next level, as it were, and dive into the commands that follow in verses 2 through 4. And, of course, Paul brings it right back to a gospel context in verse 5 leaving all of those commands in verses 2 through 4, which are so important and that I think we'll get back to later in this very sermon, Paul nonetheless trains our mind on Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 5, pointing to the mind of Christ. And our text for today is verses 5 through 7, considering heavenly-mindedness, the mind of Christ, and all that that means, which is opened up, in verses 6 through 7. And then we'll go on to how that heavenly-mindedness does indeed result in earthly good, that this isn't high and abstract theology that is divorced from experience and of no practical value, but is of the utmost practical.
practical value and importance as it contributes to our earthly good. But first we'll look at verses 5 through 8, being heavenly minded. And we see here in verse 6 what I think is a better translation than saying uh, in the form of God, the idea is that Jesus Christ, even before he had become Jesus, even though he, before he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was in very nature God. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And what verse 6 is saying is that though Jesus Christ is God, in very nature God, he didn't look at his circumstance of being God as something to grasp, as something to hold on to. He didn't look at his rights as God himself and say, that's only who, what I am. He doesn't define himself by his rights. He sees this equality with God as being something to lay aside instead of as something to grasp. I think we should spend a lot of time thinking about that, especially in these United States where we are all but obsessed with the rights that we have, and certainly we should be mindful of them. But what a thought that Jesus Christ, who was, who is God and was before he was made man, looked at his rights as God, looked at his equality with God, and even from that eternal place, looked upon them as something that he was willing to lay aside instead of to grasp. And that's where the text proceeds in verse 7. It is phrased differently in different translations, but it says in some that he emptied himself. And he empties himself by doing something interesting. He empties himself by taking on something. He empties himself by taking on the very nature of a servant. And God becomes a servant in human likeness, born the baby in Bethlehem to poor Mary and Joseph, born not in a palace, but instead in a place where animals are sheltered and he is laid in a manger, the picture of humility, a humble beginning, though it is the birth of God himself. I want you to see in these verses something that I believe continues to take place in verse 8. That being found as a man, being found in human form, he humbles himself yet further. There's all this that has taken place. Paul reaches up, as it were, into heaven itself to describe us to us how comprehensive this humiliation is. 
and that after being born as a human to Mary and Joseph, the humiliation, the humility, continues. He is found in appearance as a man and humbled himself yet further, is the idea, by becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross, or even death on the cross. Perhaps it's helpful to think of a grand staircase, a, magnific a magnificent, magnificent stairway from the heights of heaven itself down to the depths of earth, you could even say hell on earth, the cross, where a naked Lord Jesus Christ, destitute and dying, bled and suffocated to death. And that's what you have captured in these verses. There is no humiliation like this. This is humility on a scale that cannot be rivaled, that has not been advanced by the imaginations of men or the special effects of Hollywood. You don't come upon this anywhere else. No other religion, ideology, philosophy, political system has this to offer. Consider what it is. God who has no reason to die becomes man in order to live a life of perfect obedience that should result in eternal life, but instead results in the death of the cross. God who leaves heaven and was in very nature God, but laid that aside, emptied himself of glory to endure a life of difficulty and hardship in perfect obedience, for it to end with the painful and shameful death of the cross. God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, rich beyond all measure with heavenly riches that rival our money, our gold, our wealth, laid it all aside and became poor to the point of nakedness on the cross. God, the God of living, became a man to die. As you consider this staircase from the heights of heaven down to hell on earth on the cross, see those cascading levels of humility. Being in very nature God, being in the holy of holies, the heaven presence of the angels knowing by nature he is God laying aside those rights that he had as God that equality with God laying it aside not grasping after that emptying himself of all the glory that was rightfully his as God. And think of how convicting that is. This is where the heavenly mindedness becomes very practical. Be honest with yourself. How do you live this life? 
How do I live this life before me? Think about what it means to be a sinner by nature. Think about what it means to have struggled with selfishness to one degree or another every day of your existence. What is that? What is selfishness? Except for looking at what is yours by right and grasping it. Saying, I deserve that. That belongs to me. That's a comfort that should be mine. That's a pleasure I should enjoy. In fact, it's not even something that purely comes through considering how selfish we are. It is all around you, ubiquitous in the culture of the world that you live in, represented through something like a bucket list. What is that? A list of things to cling to and have before you die. Grasp these things. Wring this out of life before it slips you by. Don't let anybody stomp on you. Know your rights. Look out for number one. How humbling it is to be creatures dependent on God who are sinful by nature and therefore not holy that live day after day, moment after moment, grasping for what we perceive to be ours. And then to be confronted here by the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God, and laid the riches and the rights of heaven itself aside, to be emptied of his glory to the extent of being born to poor parents, and to live a life that results in the painful and shameful death of the cross. As you look at your life, turn from it and observe those cascading levels down from heaven to the depths of humility that the Lord Jesus Christ took willingly, even gratefully and thankfully. And consider what it means for your life. Again, go back to the beginning of our text today, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And think of all the gospel commands that precede that statement in verse 5. And realize that Paul is saying, I want you to think about Jesus Christ. I want you to think about these cascading levels of humility that go from heaven to the depths of humility, that this way of God himself, I want that to change you. I want that to transform you. I want that to take root in your life and bear fruit in every moment of your life, on every day of your life, in the workplace, in the household, in the car during your commute, in wherever you are doing whatever you are, even today as you sit here, this ought to begin changing you. It ought to have an earthly good that results from this heavenly mindedness. 
And I think maybe the best way to accomplish this or begin to accomplish this is by asking questions and turning to what we see in verses 6, 7, and 8 and thinking about it. If God himself did these things, what should I, who am made in the image of God, do accordingly? If he who is in very nature God left heaven, should I be willing to occasionally leave my comfort zone, do what I don't find particularly enjoyable, step outside of a world of relentless pleasures and entertainment and do something that I don't find to my liking? Should I go out of my way for someone else when God has left heaven for my sake? See, these questions bring you to an appreciation and enable you to access this high theology in a very practical way. If God has gone to this length, then I ought to be willing to leave my comfort zone, to sacrifice, to do what I ought to do, to glorify God, to give myself for others, to put the interest of others before myself, no matter how inconvenient it is, no matter how against the culture it is. It's what I ought to do, because God has done it, and he's done it for me. There's a subtlety in these 11 verses that is so convicting. The word back in verse 3 that's translated conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That word would be literally empty glory. Look at all the ways in which humans reach for glory and see it as an empty glory that they reach for. Don't reach for empty glory. Well, that same word empty and that word empty glory is the word that's translated emptied in verse 7. He emptied himself. It's decimating. Here we are as sinners reaching for empty glory. And God himself emptied himself of glory. Here we are grasping for everything. God himself laid aside, did not grasp equality with God. And again, the questions. Lord, if you were willing to empty yourself of glory, what should I be willing to endure? Lord, if you who were God came in the very nature of a servant, in the likeness of a human. What does that mean for me and my reputation? 
What should I be willing to endure? What humiliations ought I willingly endure for your glory when you have done this? Consider verse 18. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think of that stance towards God in heaven. Jesus Christ, equal with God in the very nature of God, occupying the same heaven as God, becomes a person, endures a life that is marked by absolutely perfect obedience. And his obedience is so perfect and complete, it extends all the way to death, even death on a cross. And throughout all of it, what is Jesus' disposition towards God in heaven? At every point, submission, love, desire to glorify God in heaven, delight and is God and Father. We go through life sinning at various points. We are not obedient, and we are not obedient to the point of death. And at many points, we groan and look and say, Lord, haven't, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't we been faithful? And yet, our life twists and turns in these difficult ways. It brings to us these trials it brings to us these vexations. It brings to us these griefs and afflictions and difficulties. Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient, even though it resulted in the painful, shameful death of the cross. And he was obedient still. As important as all of those questions are, I think the most important one is, do you see your life? Do you see your Christian life? Do you see your life in Jesus Christ? Do you see it as one that is in some ways captured by these verses? Are you willing for that to be the case? Are you willing to say life can be grievous, upsetting? My Savior is the man of sorrows. Life can bring you to the point where you are beside yourself. You are grieved. But your Savior is God who left heaven to live a life of grief. To be smitten, stricken, and afflicted by God, though he was perfect and holy. With reference to that same God. Are you willing for your life to resemble in a state of 
of humiliation. Boy, if you really want to think about how countercultural this is, just realize that outside of Scripture, nobody's telling you to look at your life as in a state of humiliation. What you should aspire to, what you should set yourself to, what you should devote yourself to is turning away from all the rights that are yours as a person and devoting yourself entirely to identifying with your Savior, who was a servant, who came in appearance as a man, who went to his own death, though he didn't deserve death. That's the question you ought to be asking. Will you see your life in Christ as in a state of humiliation? Because that's what Paul says to do. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As you ask those questions of yourself in light of verses 5 through 8 and begin to interpret and reinterpret all over again your own life, your own experience, and identify with Jesus Christ all over again and understand that what you are called to as a Christian in Christ is to take up your cross and follow him, not his cross, but your own. I want to leave you with these two tremendous thoughts. One I've mentioned indirectly throughout, I hope. This exaltation of humility, seeing humility as a divine quality that was lived out among us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is not something you find anywhere else. That's unique to the Christian faith. If you find humility, if you find the willingness to lay aside what is yours by right and possession, if you find that beautiful, if you find the concept of a God who created all things and by right deserves every good thing because they were all made by his hand, if you find the idea of him not grasping at that, but instead laying it aside so that he might become a foot-washing servant, a servant to provide forgiveness of even your sins, if you find that beautiful, then the Christian faith is for you. Come to this Christian faith. You won't find this good news anywhere else. But perhaps to make it even more direct and straightforward as we have our minds focused on the God of heaven who became man, Jesus Christ, appreciate this glorious simplicity. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Hear how those words defy Every self-help book that is saying in one way or another to be your own savior. And saying, look away from yourself. You want to know how humility begins? By despairing of yourself. Looking 
outward and saying, I need the mind of Christ. I need Jesus himself. He needs to be my Lord and Savior. I don't just need him to forgive me of my sins. I need him to be my model. I need the mind of Christ to live this life before me. Don't let the rest of the sermon get in the way. It's that simple. Turn from yourself. Despair of yourself. Look away from yourself. Abhor and humble yourself. Look to Jesus Christ. Certainly receive forgiveness through the obedience that he maintained even on the cross. And then come into a life of humiliation by having this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, deliver us from the foolishness of dabbling in theoretical, lofty, puffed-up concepts, and instead make us mindful of heavenly-mindedness, the Word of God, true doctrine, real theology. And so work in us by the Holy Spirit that those doctrines are inextricable from the moments of our lives and bear fruit in each one of them. You've given us forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. At this point, what more could we ask for than to have the very mind of Christ in us? We are made in your image. Bless us with the very mind of Christ, we pray.